This is a podcast by The Straits Times and Money FM 89.3. Time now to turn our attention to the United States, where on Saturday they commemorated the 20th anniversary of 9-11. I remember watching the events of that day unfold live and it's this is shocking it still is very shocking to I me. think a lot of people I know including myself of course we remember exactly what we were doing on yeah, that day at yeah. that time uh, when we saw the footage oh, gosh and just... it was quite something I was actually listening to radio at oh. the time so <laughs> I was at home right. uh, with the radio on and reading a book or something so I never got to see the footage or I did of course I eventually got to see the footage but I didn't get to see it right at that point yeah. I was, uh, where I was it was doing, showing all over screens I was doing an essay and, and I was on uh, the local news provider on, on TV mm. I was watching that I was like going on here? Is it, they're filming a movie? Yeah, yeah. I, th- oh. I think that was a very typical run-of-the-mill reaction gosh, on that day. Gosh. So, you see, it's that powerful. I think history was divided. Yeah. You know, it became about life before 9-11 and then life after yeah. 9-11. In fact, a survey released earlier this month found that 64% of Americans, the highest share ever, said that 9-11 has permanently changed the way they live their lives. Mm. Under George W. Bush's leadership, the U.S. responded to the 9-11 attacks by launching a war on terror beginning in Afghanistan, which has been making headlines lately with the U.S. troop pullout. Of course, Al-Qaeda's plot was believed to be conceived and organized there. Initially, of course, this military venture and the subsequent invasion of Afghanistan enjoyed strong public backing, but support eroded as the wars on the ground went on longer than expected. And after Mm -hmm. the killing of Osama bin Laden in 2011, 56% of Americans said they now supported withdrawing U.S. troops from Afghanistan. This is now complete under the Biden administration, a move that's been met with ambivalence. We're seeing both cheer and criticism, rightfully so. Okay, uh, another move that got praised and pushbacks is uh, President Joe Biden's new hotline on vaccine mandates. Uh, This will cover 80 million workers at large businesses and 17 million health workers across the U.S. Let's find out more right now from uh, Nirmal Ghosh, U.S. Bureau Chief for the Straits Times. Nirmal, good morning. Thanks for helping us out with this. Uh, let's start off with the 20th anniversary of 9-11. What was the mood like, especially where you are located in Washington, D.C.? Good morning to you. Definitely a somber mood. A lot of people reflecting on where they were when it happened, for example, Of course, everyone who was of a certain age and awake at that hour remembers where they were at the time across the world, let alone in America. So in keeping with the tendency we have of marking particular dates, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years of this or that, as this was the 20th anniversary, there was more attention than usual anyway. But what lent this day even more significance was the context of the recent withdrawal from Afghanistan. So there was more commentary than usual, perhaps, a lot of it reflective of the lessons of 9-11. And the biggest one, according to President Joe Biden, was the need for national unity. He did not mention that the United States is severely polarized today, so it remained an oblique reference, oblique yet clear. The aftermath of 9-11 did see Americans come together, but the subsequent years saw that unity start falling apart. And that trend has, of course, deepened, as we know, in the last five or six years. Another point to remember is that there has been no major attack anywhere near that scale on U.S. soil since 9-11. So fear of jihadi terrorism has somewhat receded. And most recently and currently, Americans have other things to worry about. 
the pandemic, for example. And in terms of foreign policy, the big drumbeat is the so-called China threat. And then you have a generation of young Americans now who have no personal knowledge of 9-11, and so it is hard for them to relate. This happens with time. There's a useful parallel, which is the December 1941 attack on Pearl Harbor. That is also commemorated, but doesn't resonate so much with the wider public today. So yes, a somber mood, of course, and some reflection. And we heard from many family members of those who were killed. And we heard a lot of tributes to the first responders in particular, and to the heroism of the passengers and crew of Flight 93, who crashed it before it could reach the capital here in D.C., but this moment will also quickly pass. Now, Nirmal, I understand that President Joe Biden visited all three crash sites, but he didn't give a speech in silent tribute to the victims. Uh, he also delivered his condolences through a video message, actually. On the other hand, uh, we saw George W. Bush, the president during 9-11, speaking at a memorial in Pennsylvania, and he warned of the dangers of domestic terrorists. Uh, what was he referring to? And perhaps you could tell us more about that in context. Yes, Joe Biden released a video message earlier on the evening of the 10th, but did not make any formal speeches at those sites. Now, George W. Bush was the surprise of the day, really, because he did speak in Pennsylvania and very bluntly said, we've seen growing evidence that the dangers to our country can come not only across borders, but from violence that gathers within. He said there was little cultural overlap between violent extremists abroad and violent extremists at home. And I quote, but in their disdain for pluralism, in their disregard for human life, in their determination to defile national symbols, they are children of the same foul spirit and it is our continuing duty to confront them, unquote. So this has triggered a lot of discussion because here we have the former president who was president on 9-11 and launched invasions of Afghanistan and later of Iraq and a Republican to boot making an unmistakable reference to white supremacist militants in the U.S. and even to the January 6th insurrection when Donald Trump supporters stormed the Capitol here in D.C. Certainly the reference to defiling national symbols points to that event. Now we have to remember, and this goes back to the previous point about jihadi terrorism, that the FBI is on record saying the greatest threat to the U.S. is domestic terrorism. George W. Bush's words reminded us of that and also reminded us of the tense and volatile political environment in the United States. This podcast is available on our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us. And now, back to our podcast episode. Uh, Nirmal, the FBI has released declassified documents related to 9-11 at the order of President Joe Biden. Now, these long-anticipated documents could hold more information about the attacks that could be unprecedented. What can you tell us about it? And is there anything new that we didn't know before? Right. So the report is partially redacted, but it does tell us that there was a closer relationship than had been previously known between two Saudis in particular, including one with diplomatic status and some of the hijackers. Interestingly, the 9-11 Commission said it had found no evidence that a Saudi diplomat, Fahad al-Tomeri, provided assistance to two of the hijackers. But 10 years later, this report shows the FBI had come to a different conclusion, that Al-Tumeri had actually tasked an associate to help the hijackers when they arrived in Los Angeles. He even apparently told the associate they were two very significant people. And it doesn't end there. The report describes another Saudi, Omar al-Bayoumi, who was similarly dismissed by the 9-11 Commission as unlikely to be involved in anything clandestine with 
Islamic extremists. But this report shows the FBI was told by a witness that Bayomi did not run into the hijackers by chance, as was earlier supposed, but was waiting for them, and also had made no secret of his views that the Islamic community was in a jihad. There were other instances as well of both these Saudi men in touch with people, in touch with Al-Qaeda. One or two degrees of separation, that's all. So a lot of questions are going to be asked. The biggest one is, did the U.S. let Saudi Arabia off the hook? Of course, the U.S. invaded Afghanistan because the Taliban refused to give up Osama bin Laden, and then it invaded Iraq. But how come nothing happened to Saudi Arabia? And did the 9-11 Commission sweep the Saudi part of this under the carpet? One interesting aspect is the lawsuit brought by victims' families against the government of Saudi Arabia. They see this as strengthening their case, that al-Qaeda operated inside the U.S. with the knowing support of elements of the Saudi government. Now, Nirmal, I'd like to turn to another matter that is uh, leading the headlines in the U.S. The White House recently mandated vaccines for some two-thirds of the American workforce. What exactly does this move say about Biden's stance on this? No more Mr. Nice Guy, I expect. Yes, and what prompted this was slower-than-expected job recovery and alarming COVID case numbers in a bunch of states, mostly in the Southeast and the Midwest. Safety is the key to resuming normal schooling and a normally functioning society and economy. But these growing numbers are undermining all of that. And the fact is that this is very largely a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Data shows a very tiny percentage of those hospitalized with COVID are those who are vaccinated. Now, some Republican governors have, in fact, actively opposed mandates. And there is bad blood as this has become a polarizing issue. In some places, doctors and nurses have been heckled and booed for wearing masks. In L.A., quite recently, there was an actual brawl, a fistfight between pro and anti-vaccine groups. Right, Normal. Uh, then how have Americans responded where this resistance is concerned? I mean, when you consider U.S. authorities could soon approve vaccines for kids age 5 to 11, and we're expecting something of that nature to come as soon as next month. It depends on which side of the political ideological divide you take. American culture is very individualistic. It's very much about individual freedom, not so much collective community. And there is also a traditional distrust of federal government, which becomes more and more acute the further you are away from Washington, D.C. And it also has its roots in history. And there is a new aspect, which is disinformation on social media and so forth, which fuels fear and skepticism. So broadly speaking, if you follow credible news sources and understand the basic science, and if you think it makes sense to get the vaccine and to mask up, then this is welcome. Epidemiology and public health experts have welcomed it. But if you are on the other side of this, that you see this as an infringement of personal rights, those people see this as almost tyrannical. They are even using words like totalitarianism. And the Republican Party and others in certain states are suing the federal government to stall these mandates, saying they are unconstitutional, saying individuals should decide rather than having the federal government decide for them. So it really depends on who you are and what you subscribe to. So what is the Biden administration's plan then to tackle vaccine resistance? Well, on the face of it, if a federal employee does not vaccinate, he or she would be suspended or terminated, one supposes, though that has yet to happen. And a contractor would not be able to do business with the federal government if his or her workforce is not fully vaccinated. 
So those are the penalties for not vaccinating. In short, if you choose not to vaccinate, then your world will become a bit more limited. Nobody is going to jail, despite the cries of totalitarianism, or not just yet anyway. But there will be a cost to refusing to be vaccinated. We've been speaking with uh, Street Times US Bureau Chief Nirmal Ghosh. Nirmal, thanks a lot for your time. You take care and stay safe. The Asian Insider Podcast channel is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us.